0: Welcome to episode three of Have a Blessed Gay, your weekly spiritual comedy podcast. I am your holy host, Tyler Martin. Now there is a reason that you click play. Maybe you're supposed to hear a message in this episode for yourself, or maybe to help someone else. Maybe you're wanting to know how to navigate activism on social media, or maybe you just want some quiet time to reflect and listen away from Frank. Shut the hell up, Frank. Whatever the reason, you're here. And I have something stuck in my eye. Now, those probably aren't related, but these are just the current facts. All this to say, I am so glad you're here. This is a special episode because not only did I get to chat with someone who is making a big difference in our world, I am blessed to call them my friend. Felicia Fitzpatrick. Felicia Fitzpatrick is the social media manager at Playbill. You know the programs for a Broadway show? Yeah, that company. Playbill is also a news outlet for all things Broadway. Felicia is an activist, writer, moderator, and just a kick-ass, biracial, bisexual, bicoastal unicorn. We talk about growing up biracial in a predominantly white community, the lack of response from the theater community regarding Black Lives Matter, and some tips on how to be an activist on social media. Oh, and of course, religion and spirituality. We go deep, y'all. I think it's specifically important to talk about social media right now. Like, how many times have you been pissed off at someone's posts in the last week? Me? Too many times to count. Whether we like it or not, Social media is a major part of our world. I, for one, though, am for it. I think the positives extremely outweigh the negatives. I think of it kind of like sex, actually. We can't just send it out into the world without educating and promoting safe play, right? And it's not beneficial to deny anyone being on social media or to label it as something bad because our society already relies on it. So it's becoming something that everyone kind of needs to know about. And there are a ton of positives. We can communicate with people from around the world, create and build communities. A misfit who is alone, who might not have a group in their current city, might find one that they connect with online. And we can hear breaking news instantly before news stations report on them. So it can even be used as a safety tool. Now, obviously people created it and use it. And because of that, It will be imperfect because people are shit. Well, imperfect. But it's our responsibility to promote and cultivate positive environments and interactions. Which also kind of reminds me of religion. Religion as a concept is really cool. Then people come along and screw it up. Whatever side you're on. I hope you enjoy this conversation and find it impactful. Like I do. To those who have subscribed, reviewed, and shared this podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you haven't, and you're on this journey with me, I would really appreciate it. Now, let's get into this juicy conversation. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at Better help.com slash blessed gay to check it out and get what 10% off the best part is you don't even have to leave your house they offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor video calls phone calls real-time chat and direct messaging all counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board In other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at BetterHelp.com slash Blessed Gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy! It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash blessed gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash blessed gay. Alicia Fitzpatrick, welcome to Have a Blessed Gay. Oh my gosh. Tyler, hi. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Let's just get into it, okay? Tell us Oof. who you are and what the hell you do.
1: I am Felicia Fitzpatrick, a Capricorn Sun, Virgo Moon, Scorpio Rising. Mm -hmm. Um, I am the social media director of Playbill, um, which is the company that, like, you know, creates the programs at a Broadway show. Oh, thank you so much for that information. (laughs) Um, And then on the side, I... Hosts host a podcast as well um, called Call and Response, which explores the intersection of blackness and performing arts. And, you know, I write, I moderate panels and all of those things. I'm just out here trying to live my best life, you know. You're doing a few things.
0: Now, you and I have chatted about religion and spirituality a decent amount. Uh, But we have never recorded those conversations. So I am really stoked to be recording this one. Are you ready for it?
1: Yes, I'm nervous and excited. But like, what a great, what a great place to be, you know, were
0: (laughs) you religious or spiritual growing up? You went to um, your mom took you to a Christian church, right?
1: Yeah. Um when I was like young young, we would go for like Christmas or Easter and go every once in a while. Um but it was when we moved to Vancouver, Washington, and I think about a few years after living there when I was in 5th grade, we started going to Vancouver Heights United Methodist Church. You know, it was just an interesting experience because it wasn't necessarily a foundational thing for me when I was super young, but when we went there, I went to, you know, like Sunday school, we had a confirmation class where it was me and about six or seven other kids. And we learned more about the Methodist church specifically, you know, versus the other denominations. And I got confirmed as a Methodist. And I, I really, I mean, like read the Bible, would listen to the sermons and everything. But I'll be honest, I think a lot of what I loved about that church specifically was the community, Um, which I know can be a slippery slope, right? Because you don't want to have like... <laughs> just a, a, a herd mentality that sucks you in and you start believing things other people tell you to even if you don't believe them yourself but um but I just loved I just felt like I had a bunch of aunts and uncles and grandmas right looking after me and Sue Colehep, um who passed away uh, I think last year or the year before she was a lesbian and she was the first person that introduced me to queerness I guess I should say right where oh, I really man. understood, yeah, what that meant. Um, her and her partner, Mary, went to church there. And I remember I-, I loved Sue because she played the trombone and I played the trombone in sixth grade and she was a biochemist and I wanted to be a biochemist. So we really like aligned in a bunch of different ways. And I said something or maybe my mom had said something about like Sue and and Mary. And I was like, wait, they're a couple. And she was like, yes, what about it? And I was like, oh, I guess, you know, and so I had this moment of like, oh, I guess it doesn't matter if you're with a man or a woman, if you love each other, like it was this really profound moment. Um, So also like the church, uh, the, the church that we went to was a part of the reconciling network of United Methodist churches, which meant that it was welcoming and accepting and open to all members, regardless, regardless of like sexual orientation, race, you know, where you came from, like, it was so open and welcoming. And I just think that formed my perspective on life because it was such an open progressive place that it formed my values you know of of life and people <laughs> accepting everyone does that make sense
0: oh my gosh totally i think yeah. it's interesting people either have on the other side of the spectrum where it is very conservative and it's very um specific and who they lift up in those types of congregations. I feel like there's two kinds of people who go through that ones that like or maybe three, actually one that's like diehard. And they're like, yeah, I believe in this. The other one that's kind of complacent and they're like, sure, everyone else is doing it. So why not? And then the other one is like, no, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. Um, and so you have from that other side, something that pushes people or well, one way or, or another. And then in this situation though, where you grow up in an uplifting kind of environment, I, I don't know if there's really that type of like push and pull. Cause if you grow up knowing, okay, everyone should be empowered, everyone should be accepted, then, like, what's the push and pull to that? You know
1: mm-hmm. yeah, totally. It's like, okay, fuck yeah, let's do this. Let's have radical acceptance and celebration of everyone.
0: You seem like maybe not as religious, but possibly more spiritual now. is that would that be true?
1: I don't know. I guess I am more spiritual in the sense that I think of the universe versus God maybe directly more these days. um and I'm into meditation. I'm like, you know, if you vibrate at a higher frequency, like what you put out into the world is going to like be attracted back to you. Um, but I do still pray and finding a community, like go, we go dating with churches, right. To see what you like and what you don't like. Um, and I, I guess I, I just had other priorities when I first moved here in terms of what I wanted to make of New York City and church wasn't high on that list, to be honest. Um last year, for a while, I went to um FCBC down in Harlem, like, I think it's I think it's one sixteenth that it's on, um which is a Black Baptist Church. And it's completely opposite in the experience of like Vancouver Heights was very white um because it was in Vancouver. and, you know, the the services at Vancouver Heights last like an hour. And this was like a whole morning. Like you get there at 1045, you leave at 145. Like it was that experience that I've never really had before, but heard about from other friends. But the first time I went, I went with my friend Jamichael and it was really emotional. People were getting baptized and I felt tears welling up in my eyes and I was like why am I crying right now like and, and it was just one of those things where I knew that I was supposed to be there that day the sermon that day really spoke to me the the scriptures the, it, it was just I needed to be at that base and root myself in that experience at that time yeah um, it just spoke to a lot of things that I was feeling at the time so not a consistent relationship I have of going with the church but I think it's something that I more focus on internally you know through journaling meditation and all of that
0: well, I so relate to your idea of dating churches because when <laughs> Enrique and I, Enrique's my partner, when we first moved here, uh, we went through a series of churches and it's so difficult for us because I love contemporary churches. Like mm-hmm. I want to go into a rock concert and mm. dance for like an hour and a half like that. Mm-hmm. I, I love that so much. Uh, and then he grew up Catholic, traditional, and... She prefers that. And so we are like the uh, complete opposite as far as what we like in a church. And oh, interesting. So, uh-huh. So it's really, really difficult for us to ever find one where we're like, yeah, this has both. <laughs> right, right. Because they're so different. Um, but And then also, I actually found it really challenging in New York. And I, I don't know if you have found this to be true or not. But actually, a lot of churches here are not accepting Uh, There Mm. are several tolerant churches
1: Mm.
0: as far as accepting and uplifting churches. There's really a handful, which I thought was so shocking because it's New York. So you would think that side of things. But it's it's actually kind of challenging to find something like that.
1: Yeah, which is and, and it's too bad, too, because and I think especially for like people our age, we are of the generation of we're here to liberate. We're here to uplift. We're here to like celebrate everyone's differences. And I think there is that element of fear of like, oh, are are they open to LGBTQ people and members or are they homophobic as fuck? And like, it's it's a scary thing to consider. It's a hard thing to navigate. I mean, I guess I should, I don't know if I should say lucky for me, but I do read as straight, um, which I think, I guess, you know, obviously allows just for me to interspaces feeling safe, which is a privilege that I definitely recognize. Um, but it's not, the world that I want to live in of that. Oh, I can rely on looking straight to to enter a church uh, like a church or a place of worship. Like it should not be that way. It should definitely be open to anyone who wants to just like worship and be in that space. Like it should not there should be no discrimination for that.
0: What is reading straight mean to you out of curiosity? Ugh, um. I'm going to ask it. I'm going to ask. it. I'm so curious.
1: No, I do. I, yeah, I totally get it. It's just it's something I think about a lot in terms of being, I guess I would identify as bisexual or queer or uh, pansexual. I know people are saying are bi is biphobic. And so I'm like not trying to be biphobic at all. But my understanding of, oh, my God, I'm getting to eight different conversations. OK, identifying as a queer woman, right, is to me is not like race because it's not something you, you necessarily see on me externally. When you see me, you know, I'm of some type of color. You may not know that I'm biracial, but you know that I'm not fully white, with being queer, I am more, quote, I read more, oh my God, all these binary terms, it's hard to dissect, but like feminine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I present more feminine. I mean, I definitely have, I embrace masculine sides of myself, but when people see me, they're not like, oh, you're a lesbian. They 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 don't automatically assume that about me. Um, and I've only really Most of my romantic relationships have only been with men. So I think people might operate under that assumption as well if they've only known me for like the first part of my life. But I do try to make an effort like in terms of social media and stuff too. And in my like daily life of letting people know that I am queer and that I'm a space for people to feel comfortable in their own queerness. It's a lot, Tyler. I was not expecting all this. I need more iced coffee right now, okay? Iced coffee. Texans. Yes.
0: I mean, do you, well, wait, do you claim Texan as your your label as far as that goes? (laughs) Do you claim the label Texan?
1: This, uh, labels, identities, this is, like, I literally have so many conversations going on inside of myself because I just feel a sense of duality in so many ways. Actually, that's
0: so true. Even as far as location goes. Yep, I've, uh, biracial, bisexual, bi-coastal. Well, I don't want to overwhelm you, but I do have something <laughs> really serious that I do want to bring up next. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. I, hope, I hope you are okay <laughs> and stable enough to handle this. Let me take another sip of my iced coffee. Go ahead. Oh. Okay, so everyone, I have some receipts that I would like <laughs> to show. Um, Felicia was recently in the nativity scene at her mother's church this past year mm. as... A shepherd. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> so the last time Felicia graced the church's stage,
1: uh-huh. she
0: played the pivotal role, Mary. Uh-huh. Now it seems <laughs> like there might be some tea to spill. Uh-huh. Um, how did it feel to return as a shepherd and not as everyone's favorite virgin? <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. You're so funny. Um, <laughs> LOL. I know it was a, it was a big homecoming kind of moment. You know, I think it's like probably how Audra feels when she goes home to perform. Um, I think she's from Fresno, California. But like, yeah, you know, it's like what a welcome home. You know what? It was a moment of joy and community. I guess I keep coming back to fellowship, all these things. Um, and then after that whole nativity scene, because we were talking about how, A girl that was in my confirmation class, Sabrina, her baby was baby Jesus this year. And so then we were like, wow, we have come to the point where like now people my age are supplying uh, the kids to be baby Jesus. So then we were trying to figure out who has been the baby Jesus throughout the years. And I was like, who was the baby that I held? Because I, I could not remember who it was. And that was in 2007 when I was married. And we were like, who? And so it was started this whole chain reaction of like I was running around to all the tables in the fellowship hall, being like, "This is the photo of the baby. Do you recognize them?" We were trying to track and like figure out, you know, who had a baby around that time that I could have carried it, or whose granddaughter, or whose, da- you know, it's like all these different things. It was, it was so fun. I don't. It was just, it was just so joyful. And yeah, so it was. <laughs> Wait, did you find the baby? Okay. No, we don't know whose baby it was. And there, it wasn't, the photo wasn't labeled with like, you know, Felicia and my high school boyfriend, Travis, with Joseph, LOL. Um, but it's like no names are on there. We asked all the people who've been there for years and years and years who would have known. No, it was a mystery baby Jesus. I know. Well,
0: what a just to those children who got <laughs> to perform with a veteran like yourself, what a, <laughs> What a thrill. What a lesson. Um,
1: we really had to say yes, Anne. You know what I mean? Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> and I do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, Shout out to Mama Fitz. We love her so much, by the way, everyone. We love her so much. Um, But thank you to her for... Um, taking pictures of this Uh. riveting performance of you as a (laughs) shepherd because I I still have it as your photo in my phone to this day. (laughs) Now, Felicia's mom, everyone, is what we can call white. Mm -hmm. And as you have already stated, you, Felicia, are not white. Mm -hmm. Um, You grew up in a rather white community though were there challenges even though you had that awesome sense of community were there challenges growing up biracial in a predominantly white community
1: yes there were a lot of challenges and it inspires a lot of my writing you know these these essays I do like I did one for Teen Vogue about my hair and I did one um I guess that was last fall for, um, Zora, which is a publication on medium for women of color about doing ballet. Uh, cause I grew up dancing and I think writing has helped me unpack the trauma because I've journaled through since fifth grade. So I've journaled throughout my life and I'm able to refer to those things, but there's something about writing them more formally as essays. Um, and publishing them to a certain degree to know like people can connect to them because they maybe have had the same experiences and won't feel us alone. But it's it's brought up a lot of feelings for me, you know, mining these experiences, um, you know, trying to think of concrete examples. But it's things like I got my first relaxer, my hair relaxer, right, to make it straight in elementary school because I was surrounded by white kids, I was, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed girls. And I wanted To look like them. I wanted to fit in like them. And so hair was a big part of that for me. Straightening my hair made me feel like I could hit this threshold of of white beauty. You know, for, for, for black hair, you have to keep it moisturized. You have to keep it hydrated. And so that means you put lotion, you put oil on your scalp, you know, you do these things to maintain it. And people would say you put Car grease in your hair or like, you know, you put you you put hand lotion in your hair. I cite that as one of the first time I feeling othered because they didn't go through that experience. And I, I didn't know it was different until they made it feel wrong. I, there was one time, there was this one girl in particular who was very much like my my bully at the time who didn't like my hair. Um, and she had a pool party or like a hot tub, you know, sleepover party, whatever. And we all got in our hot tub, but I couldn't get my hair wet, right? Because if you get chlorine, the, the chemicals of the relaxer get stripped out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't have a swim cap, but I wanted to go swimming so bad because you want to have a sense of belonging. And it's just so interesting that I wasn't able to engage in the swimming thing that would make me feel like I belonged because I had straightened my hair. So I feel like I belonged. Uh so the only solution that her mom and I could come up with was to put a plastic bag around my head. And there was something so humiliating about that in whatever grade I was, I think it was second or third. Um so yeah, there, you know, it's things like that that I, I think back to it and I was like, wow, that is that was a huge moment and for my identity. Um puberty ain't fun for anyone like the pimples the braces all the things but I had all of that and then on top of that trying to fit into the white beauty standards right like I fucking loved Hillary Duff and I definitely think she was actually a queer awakening for me in some ways but trying to look like her trying to look like my classmates who look like her led to a lot of self-deprecation and I made a list the year the summer after seventh grade I was like I want to shop more at American Eagle and Hollister even though their clothes certainly did not fit my body type but it's you know you don't you can't acknowledge it like that in the moment. And it's only after when you're like, oh, that wasn't necessary. That wasn't fair to you. That wasn't how it had to be. But um I've come around, you know, I've I've worked through it and like I wear my hair natural now. And um I certainly don't wear Hollister or American Eagle anymore. But um I have embraced my oddities. I've embraced my queerness, my blackness, all of these things that I was ashamed of. Um, but it took leaving. You know, I, I like Vancouver for different reasons, and and I'm grateful for my growing up there uh, for for different reasons. But it took going to Texas, it took coming to New York to understand that being me is okay.
0: And I'm curious too, the kind of the idea of like straight being the go to, the norm, um, mm-hmm. the default, uh, white <laughs> in. Most media being the default. So you say, you know, you've embraced all these attributes of yourself, all these things, all these wonderful aspects. How do you label them internally, not as other, but how do you embrace it as just who you are, as your own default?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think it's become the default because it is the truth. And I think I recognize it as the truth because I'm happier. I like myself more. I love myself more. You know, my default now is wearing my hair twisted out, curly, natural hair. Like in terms of if I'm no, I'm going to have photos taken or if I'm going to an event, whereas before it was always like no like no one saw my hair curly except for my mom or my hairdresser from ages like six or seven to 2012. So how old was I then? Twenty one. Like wow. I never let people see my hair curly, but now it's my go-to because I like the way I look. Feeling happier in these identities, feeling more myself, feeling alive, feeling present. That's that's how it's become my default.
0: Throughout your journey inward and in with yourself, somehow you moseyed on into being the queen of social media at Playbill. Wow. In the current climate that we are in i know so many people are disappointed with broadway and just theater in general due to the lack of support and the lack of response for the black lives matter movement but is it really that shocking broadway has historically been and continues to be very 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 white Uh, And you actually have been bringing attention to this issue with your podcast, uh, Call and Response, which uplifts black voices within entertainment, specifically Broadway. Would you talk about some of the challenges that there are for black people on and off a Broadway stage?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's it's interesting. Uh, This is a very interesting moment. And I think. A lot of it is due to the fact that we have been quarantined for three or four months. Actors, creatives, they don't necessarily have the jobs. I mean, they they don't have the jobs that they had before this. Right. Um, So there's I think there's been a freedom for people to say, you know what, I'm going to speak my truth. These are stories that black actors and actors of color have been holding inside them for so long. Like with the podcast People will share stories, you know, they'll be like, oh, so and so did this or, or, you know, this happened to me in a rehearsal room. But then you turn off the mic and then I, I hear even more stories from these people of the, about their experiences in rehearsal rooms and X, Y, Z, that you know, whatever it is. And now those are the stories that are actually being recorded. I think for so long, people were scared and to a certain degree now they still are of not getting hired again. For people getting in power, being mad at them and blacklisting them, which also there's such an interesting Connotation with blacklisting, right? But, um there I, I, so I do think there's been a certain liberation of people saying, "You know what? I don't have a job right now anyways. Broadway's not coming back till whenever. Let me say how it really is. And people are actually paying attention because they're not distracted by their daily lives of going out, the Tony Awards, the next opening, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been I, I can only imagine the relief and terror that comes with sharing these stories, um that, that these black creatives are sharing right now. And I'm really proud of them. I'm impressed. Like, it's scary to speak out against power. Um, I think the industry is realizing that it has been devaluing and dehumanizing black people for a very long time, only expecting them to perform, which there's, it just goes so deep, right? Like they only want to consume black bodies as a way of entertainment. They don't care about them as people. They don't care about them, um, you know, there's a lot of behavior to unlearn. There's a lot of things that we have to hold people accountable for uh, in order to move forward. And I think something that's been addressed, too, that it's not just casting. It's not just the actors on stage, but it is having equity. And actually, um, Daniel J. Watts was was talking on a forum I was listening to the other day, and he said, I don't want diversity. I want equity. And I think that's a beautiful way Mm -hmm. of saying it because we don't need to just have black and brown bodies on stage. We need to have producers. We need to have theater owners. We need to have social media managers. We need to have writers. We need to have marketing. You know, it hits every level of the Broadway ecosystem of where we need to have representation and inclusion of, of people of color.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't just put on once on this island and be like, OK, <laughs> did no. my part Exactly. Um, when the whole team is white. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it's not just Broadway, too. I think it's important for everyone, whether you're involved in theater or you go occasionally, um, look at your communities, look at your regional theaters, look at your just community theaters and see what the staff looks like go on their fucking websites and see how many white people versus other people are on there uh see what shows they're doing who's directing those shows who's choreographing those shows i think it's easy to look at something massive and be like oh yeah they need to fix that but my community is you know we're fine no, you're not fine. Um, mm. Do your work in your own community, and then that work will transfer to the bigger ones. Don't leave it to only the massive communities. It's it's your it's your job. It's all of our jobs to make that happen. Totally. And I think it's really important the representation, like you're saying, that even you bring as a social media manager. For Playbill, such a institution that is widely known, and you have done a really terrific job using the platform, um, just using social media in general as a form of activism. And social media now is really powerful. Twitter is where we're getting our breaking news, and so I think it's appropriate to use social media as a tool. For activism. What has that process been like though for you, not only using your own platform, but also Playbill's platform to promote this movement?
1: It's been exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Only because, and I speak to Playbill specifically, like being a Black social media manager in this time when you represent a white institution is no easy feat. You have your own personal values, you have your own personal beliefs. And yeah, they might align with some of the other people that work there, but you know, how how much are you allowed to present what you feel to be the truth on a brand social media account? Um, It's really tricky. It's really tricky because people, you know, we're, we're tweeting at Playbill when all of the protests started and said, Playbill, why haven't you said something? I'm like, Felicia will, but like, I have to have approval I I, I don't own the company. Like I have to make sure that the people who run the company, agree. And it's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling. Luckily, you know, the conversations we've had, there is a commitment to amplifying black voices and using our platform in that way. But it's seen as a white institution and seeing the backlash. and You're like, I hear you. I am with you. Like, I am doing as much as I can. And luckily, the social media coordinator uh, I work with at Playbill is also a black woman. Um, So we've been able to lean on each other. But damn, should we have to? Like, It's been hard, (laughs) Um, but, but, but so we have had conversations. The higher ups have been open to our ideas. Um, You know, we've had a hand in crafting messages, which has been exhausting, but also like, I'm happy that my voice is being heard in these rooms because I think having access to a platform like that means I need to use that power responsibly and like in the right way. Um, So having my voice heard in that way has been been helpful and nice um one of the initiatives i'm excited about right now is that we're going to do takeovers um with black theater organizations so like bold which is a group that's dedicated to building up black women in the performing arts for the restoration of culture um i'm hoping to work with fire this time festival harlem nine the movement and use this platform that i've built up is playable like Playbill's instagram specifically uh to amplify these organizations that people should know about that I've already had relationships with and know that they're doing incredible work. And now is the time where I can be like, y'all, we need to amplify the voices because people need to know about the work being done. Uh, So that's been really like heartwarming and in a way of like, okay, I am using uh, Playbill's platform in an important and essential way.
0: Do you think social media is bringing us together or pulling us apart? There's a, argument ever since social media came into popularity Uh, and I'm curious especially in circumstances like this do you think yeah is it is it helping
1: or is it hurting I think the best that social media can be is when it brings people together people are able to connect with like-minded people to feel less alone you know even that's what memes are right like memes are an inherent understanding of an experience and you're like oh shit people felt the same way about that wow me too I thought I was the only one, you know, um, but on the other end of the spectrum, it's a place where cyberbullying is rampant because people feel empowered by the keyboard um, and not acknowledge something or someone face to face. So I, it can do both. I think it's really wonderful how
0: quickly we can post something. I think that is a really cool thing with social media and how vast the audience can be. But you can post something too quickly too, <laughs> you know, like whatever you're writing, could you say that out loud? Could you look at someone, the person or people that you're talking to? And could you literally say those same words out loud to their face? Uh, if you can't or if you couldn't, then, hey, probably don't post that. Mm. Um, I think that's a good rule to go by. Uh, There are just so many posts that I I go through and I roll my eyes at. I get so pissed off because it seems overly performative or argumentative or attention seeking. And it's challenging because social media is inherently performative. You you can't post anything without an element of performance because that's kind of the whole point is to make a statement. Right. But um, how do you have a balance between this overly performative nature of social media versus genuine connection
1: i (laughs) this is so silly everyone's gonna be like what the fuck but like you know those top nine things that come out at the end of the year of like what your top nine posts the most liked posts were oh yeah well like all the the shirtless pictures (laughs) yeah well right that, that was the thing like the first year i looked at it it was like only photos of me and i'm like okay like okay, if the people want it, I'll give them more solo photos, I but know, I also like, felt weird. I get it, I get it, but <laughs> like, still. If I post a picture with Audrey McDonald, why is that not the number one photo? You know what I'm saying? Like, I was very surprised by that, but I was like, I also realized that the solo photos were often markers of milestones or really long fucking captions where I'm talking about identity, experience, reflection, all of these things. So I gave the people what they wanted, which is more solo photos. But I realized, you know, what? what is the content that seems to be the most engaged with. And I don't mean that as like, Oh, let me get numbers so I can be an influencer. I mean, what are people connecting with? What are the stories that people like? It was, you know, I would tell the story of auditioning for NYU and not getting in and how that fucked me up and talk about trusting the process of getting back to New York. I talked about identity of becoming, um, more, more comfortable with my queerness of embracing it, you know, and, and my blackness for that matter. Um, all of these different facets of my identity. And it's hard because the photos, you know, are that that curated moment of like, wow, so glam, but the content, the writing feels more authentic. And that's where I, you know, like I said, I like to tell stories is through words. Um, social media is, is tricky in general, just because yeah, information spreads quickly. I think we saw that with the blackout Tuesday of like, people were like, okay, like, we're we're blacking out our entire grid, like post a black square. But then it was like, oh, people are hashtagging Black Lives Matter. Okay, that fills up the feed where people can't find the information they need for the protests. Or, um, you know, it wasn't just a post a black square in solidarity. You're supposed to be amplifying more black voices. So it's, it's hard to navigate. And that's why I try to be very like diligent. The first week of the protests, like people were just ready to churn out content, to share content, curate content, give resources to people to understand what was going on. Um, and I try, I, I try to do research and like vet the information that I'm sharing to see if I agree with it, to see if it feels like it's on the right track for what I understand is happening. Um, but I've had missteps for sure. Like the eight can't wait, which was like the eight, the eight policies that could be enacted in the moment to decrease police brutality. But then people were like, no, like we shouldn't have to ask for just crumbs. Like, let's go the full way and demand more. And I was like, you know what? I totally get that. And so I was like, that was something that I needed to inform myself on more.
0: And I think, too, uh, some people are critical of preaching to the choir, preaching to the people that you already know, that you're already friends with. But I think what this has been a learning experience for a lot of people is that even if they are in your circle, they might not have the same views as you. Like how many people have you (laughs) defriended or blocked or, Mm. you know, throughout this experience. I think there is still importance, even if it is just to your own people, to have those conversations, even if they are online. I think it's still important to do that there. And then, yeah, take it outside of social media. Have them in real life where it, it doesn't feel as, virtual. But then also there's a lot of good things as far as even like petitions or things that we can sign, things that we can donate to, um, different organizations that we can highlight in a way that is harder to when you're just having a face-to-face conversation. So I think uh, in those ways, social media can be very helpful.
1: Absolutely. That was beautifully articulated. Oh my,
0: oh my God. (laughs) Where can... People keep up with you and just all the badass work that you're doing.
1: Um, I'm at Felicia Nicole 86 on all social media platforms. Um, and then I have a cute little WordPress, like a little online portfolio. It's Felicia Fitzpatrick. WordPress.com. Shout feel. out. Yeah. Um, and then if people want to follow Colin Response, uh, it's Colin Response NYC on Instagram. And then unfortunately, Twitter's. Handle limit would not allow call and response NYC, so it's call response NYC, and it'll haunt me until my dying day. It's so that's <laughs> such a bummer. I love consistent handles, and yet here we are. You're wonderful. I love you
0: so much. Thank you for talking with me.
1: Ah, oh, Tyler, I love you. Thanks for having me. What a blast!
0: What an amazing conversation, right? Just so many incredible things to take away from this. So here are my main takeaways. Number one, religion is community. Number two, who the hell played Felicia's baby Jesus? Number three, examine the ways that you try to fit in. Are you trying to look and sound like your society's default? Don't hide what makes you special. And if you have to, to fit in, then that's definitely not the right community for you. Number four, What does your inner default look like? What do they sound like? Look in the mirror and see if it matches. Because you are the default. Because that is the truth. Number five, look at your communities and their leaders. Are they diverse? If they aren't, acknowledge it, talk about it, and change it. Number six, look at the arts that you give your money to. Are they diverse? Not just the talent, but the people behind the talent. Know who you're giving your money to. Number seven, it is alright to preach to the choir. You might find out that some of your choir members don't believe what you do. Number eight, think before you post on social media and ask yourself some of these questions. What is my intention? Am I using my platform for positivity? Does this benefit others or just me? Could I stand in front of a crowd and say this same post out loud? I could go on and on with notes, but I'll leave you with that. What a great discussion. I have posted links in the show notes for Felicia. Check them out, especially her podcast call and response. And please follow this podcast. Subscribe, comment, leave a review, and reach out to me. I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you thought of these topics and if there are topics you would specifically like to hear discussed. Also, speaking of social media, check out the podcast social media at Have a Blessed Gay on all the platforms and definitely engage with me on there. Now, because this content is heavy at times, you might not be able to laugh it off. And if you are struggling and having a hard time, I will always post helplines in the show notes. So, please, please reach out if you need to. Just remember this you are special, you are purposeful, and you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.